This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. We're speaking this week and in our next few episodes every Tuesday about the topic of AI in defense. One of our most popular articles of the last 18 months was called The Seven Weaknesses of the West, which has to do with the AI race between the United States and China. Clearly, there's a lot of interest from Emerge listeners and readers in terms of how artificial intelligence is changing the nature of war and the military. And there's so many lessons from changing the big stodgy cultures of defense and military that translate to how innovation has to operate in almost any enterprise. So a lot of transferable lessons here. There's also a lot of interesting use cases and trends that affect not only our business, but the balances of international power. It seemed like it would be worth kicking off a series. So that's exactly what we've done. And what better guest to talk about the dynamics of innovation in defense and the impact of artificial intelligence on defense than Steve Blank himself. Steve Blank needs really no introduction, but I'll give you one anyway. Steve Blank is arguably one of the best-known Silicon Valley thinkers alive today. His book called The Startup Owner's Manual had a profound effect on myself, and I'm sure many, many, many other entrepreneurs. It's a remarkably popular book and one of many that Steve has authored. He is also an adjunct professor at Stanford University, where he teaches about innovation, but also innovation in modern war. Steve has a background in the military. He was in the Air Force before moving out to Silicon Valley and starting and selling a variety of companies, from Convergent Technologies to Ardent to Epiphany and more. Since then, his teaching and writing has been massively influential, and again, he's maintained an emphasis on innovation in modern war. Today, Steve speaks to us about how innovation has to operate within the military and what the United States Department of Defense might do better to adopt future technologies and evolve more quickly in the face of a very capable adversary in the form of China. Steve is really no holds barred here. I was frankly surprised by his level of candor, but I was very pleased by it because I think, frankly, we need to hear it. For those of you interested in the global dynamics of power, this will be a fascinating episode about the United States and China. For those of you interested in how to make big, stodgy enterprises and organizations evolve and what kind of systems have to evolve within them and how leaders' thinking must evolve, Steve provides some gems that should be immediately applicable to nearly any industry. So while this episode is about defense, I hope its transferability will be useful for literally everybody tuned in. I'm grateful to be able to have Steve with us as somebody who's read his work and genuinely appreciated his contributions, so we're happy to have him here to kick off this three-part series on AI in defense. We have worked awful hard here at Emerge to make sure we could get the best possible guests. If you've learned a lot from these episodes and you've enjoyed these episodes, be sure to stay subscribed to the AI and Business Podcast on iTunes, what is now called Apple Podcasts, and consider leaving us a five-star review. Not only does it help us learn what episodes you like most, but it also helps other people learn about the show. So if you want to support the program and support our efforts to bring on world-class guests to bring insights to you, uh, then can, again, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, let's dive into this episode. This is Steve Blank himself here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Steve, I'm happy we're able to have you here on the program. A lot of the folks who are listening in have undoubtedly heard of and or digested your books in the innovation space. But today we're talking about defense. And I want to sort of get your high-level take, for the folks that aren't already aware of it, of kind of the current state of DOD innovation versus 
sort of where you'd like to see things moving, where you're hoping so the institution will move in time. So maybe you can tee it up in your own way. Uh, well, the short answer is we're screwed. <laughs> I, I love the, the frankness. I love the frankness. I am already excited about how incorrect we've started. This is wonderful. Please elaborate. Well, listen, it's not that we're screwed that we did a lot of stupid things. We did a couple of dumb things, but it's mostly, you know, inside the DOD, you know, your head is kind of down, focused on your existing operational environment or the tech you're working on or depending where you are. But we often aren't required to look out the window at commercial technologies. And what's happened in the last uh, 10 years, certainly in the last five, is all the things that are going to be required to win the next fight are now being developed faster, better, cheaper, etc., outside of the DOD and even outside of our primes and traditional national industrial base. And we could just go through the list. AI, machine learning, autonomy, cyber, biotech, even commercial access space. Whoever thought like, you know, there are more satellites up there from SpaceX, a commercial company, than the DOD has put yeah, out in 50 yeah. years. Maybe the only thing the DOD still owns is hypersonics and and, and some other exquisite pieces of technology, and maybe quantum, but, but that's still being funded, probably still at a greater scale outside than DOD budgets yeah. have. Yet the problem is, is that these not only are being driven by commercial entities, they're being driven at a speed and cycle time that is not within the current purview of the DOD. That is, if you go through our PBBE and JCDIS, that is our requirements and, and budgeting process, let alone our acquisition system, you know, if it's two years to even write a requirement, you know, technology's gone through maybe a couple of generations in AI and machine learning literally, by then. Yeah, literally. Um, the base problem is just on the tech side, the river's running backwards, meaning, you know, you thought it was water supposed to flow in this direction, and now there's a tidal bore coming, and we hadn't planned for that. So one is our systems, both planning, requirements, et cetera, and that affects, obviously, new operational concepts. You know, AI is, uh, you know, if you read the, AI report from uh, Bob Work and Eric Schmidt, it kind of lays out. It changes everything. What's going to change, create new operational concepts, it's going to affect intelligence, it's going to affect planning, it's going to be embedded in, you know, and everything we're doing manually will be done, you know, semi-assisted or completely automated. Billets will change, organizations will change, etc. And all those are wrenching changes. You know, our adversaries, particularly if you look at China, but, yep. but Russia is also now fielding a, autonomous land attack vehicles. You know, the Navy's kind of figured out in South China Sea, they need a Navy that, in this fact, this came from the head of Naval Information Warfare Systems Command, that they need synchronized lethal effects, uh, and they have to develop the networks and infrastructure and architectures and tools and analytics that require them to regain dominance in the South China Sea. And just to be clear... You know, I hope all your listeners realize it's no longer an American lake. It's rapidly becoming a Chinese lake, both in their ability to, to spit out ships like, you know, like no tomorrow, but also because they made some strategic moves where we blinked and they just moved in dredging ships that didn't require warships. They just seized shoals where it now solved the problem of not having a tanker refueling or long range assets at the time. And why do you need to build more carriers when you solve the problem in the South China Sea by seizing shoals. So, you know, the whole world has changed. And what that means is for the DOD, and, and Christian Bros in, in, in his book, The Kill Chain, I think laid this out well, but the, the summary is almost all the weapon systems we have and all the major defense acquisition programs are albatrosses. 
their legacy. They're here as a jobs employment program. I'm saying that just to piss off most of the people who are listening who are employed in them. That's great. Because you're building, you're building the wrong thing. Because the fight's going to be in cyber and AI. It's going to be over in an hour and a half. And the issue is going to be, can we reconstitute some of those assets we're going to lose that were basically, whether they were overhead or underwater, et cetera, and have we adopted and embraced the new technologies where the new space is going to be? You asked a simple question, but that's yep. uh, the opening salvo. By the way, let me just be clear. It's not that folks in the DOD and our primes and aren't smart people thinking about this problem. They're thinking hard about it, but we still haven't put stuff in the water or in the air or in other places at scale. You know, the DOD has more demos than anybody else on the planet, but it requires lots of experimentation that eventually gets integrated from the edges and becomes programs of record. That's not happening, and it's not happening with enough speed because no one wants to kill anything. And I mean, I'm not talking about an adversary, I'm yeah, talking about yeah. programs. So that's, uh, sorry, I've just been talking a lot. No, 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 we've we got a couple good things here. So, so I'm, I'm going to pick up some of the pieces, and it's it's stuff that, you know, um, some of the people who study this space may be aware of, but I think your points of emphasis are, are important. Uh, and you also referenced a couple works by some other authors, which I would encourage our listeners to tune into, uh, Schmidt's report is certainly worth the read. Um, but we're talking about... Well, the, I'm not sure it's 700 pages it's worth the read, but the summary is <laughs> worth the read. There <laughs> um, we go. There we go. Yeah, yeah. You know, and if you're a congressman, you could have your staffer tell you that, that, you know, the 32nd version, which is we're screwed and we need to kind of like put some funding and emphasis around the subject. Yeah, that, that was the that was the four-second version. Nice job, Steve. Right. Good work on that one. So we've got this problem of innovation happening outside of the DOD and their traditional partners, you know, the, the, the ecosystem they used to play in. And we've got, you know, sinking dollars into the sustaining of, you know, older programs, like you said, as a jobs program, as opposed to actually, you know, kind of playing to win here. When it comes to the most important ways around this, I guess maybe we can take this one piece at a time, Steve. One of them is innovation happening outside of the traditional sort of DOD sphere, we see a lot of purported effort. And, and, and these are people, you know, I respect and, and I think they have the heart and their mind in the, in the right place. We hear of a lot of folks, uh, you know, we had Mike Brown on not that long ago. And, and, you know, I talked to him some two years ago. And certainly there's effort and talk around private public sector partnership. You know, a lot of stated efforts in that department, like you said, a lot of it just turns into demos. But there, there seems to be some goodwill in that direction. Is the primary reason that the private-public partnership shebang isn't working out? It sounds like you brought up two important things. Number one, the procurement process is just too stodgy. Number two, we're not willing to kill anything to make new room for anything else. Are there major topics that need to be brought up in the conversation of how to actually make innovation happen? Like how to take all the stuff happening outside of the DOD and bring it in? Are there any other big pillars we're missing here? Well, you know, a big chunk of this is Congress and, and our acquisition system defaults to whatever the question is, the answer is a prime or an incumbent. You know, I want to give due to the, the fact that they build complex and, and important systems. But, you know, in the 20th century, most of our technology was sheet metal that maybe you bent and added some software to if it needed any. In the 21st century, these systems are software that maybe you wrap some sheet metal around. And I don't, think, it, yeah. I don't think people have processed this. Because I will contend that every one of the primes get a D. And I'm, I'll just name a name. I mean, Boeing's failures in the last five years or so 
have been software failures. They know how to put wings and engines on airplanes, but in fact, and know how to build physical spacecraft. But if you look at the failures of, you know, the Boeing Starliner and the 737 and the KC-46 and almost every major program has not been, gosh, people know how to build airframes, um, or at least, you know, unless we forget some of that. But the software stuff is not just what's added on. And it's this new generation of companies that actually know how to do that. The problem is the DOD is basically, and Congress, kind of given in to a generation of rent seekers. It's like we're still like the horse blanket and horseshoe folks are still in charge in 1935, and we're still not buying tanks. We need to have a whole new generation of primes. And I don't mean putting the existing ones out of business because those large exquisite systems, whether they're carriers or boomers or something else, are still going to be needed. But unless we build a new defense industrial base that understands how to build radically different things, we're going to fall further behind. There's no doubt that Mike Brown, as the new acquisition head, understands that. But that's not the problem. The problem is, is how much does Congress want to want to agree to that? And that requires, you know, pissing off your lobbyists and your donors. And, you know, this is why large corporations eventually become rent seekers. When they lose the ability to innovate, they still have the ability to lobby and protest. That's not in the nation's interest right now. There's a window of vulnerability that the United States faces that I don't think we've been honest with the American people about. If you just look at the drone war between Armenia and, and Azerbaijan, you know, you wonder whether the army could field something at that scale. And that was used, that was done using Turkish and Israeli weapon systems. Um, you know, basically, if you were a tanker or artillery or whatever on the ground, you were toast. And that wasn't even an automated process. So the world has changed rapidly. I'm not sure we've all kind of understood the crisis we're in. Um, and that incremental change is insufficient. Yeah, well, I, you know, you've brought up an idea that I actually haven't uh, heard, frankly, stated before, is that we, we need some new generation of primes. That's interesting, because I think the way I'm, I have heard it framed thus far, particularly speaking to DOD people, or, or even to companies selling into the DOD, is that, hey, it'd be great if we could kind of lower the barrier of entry for you know, startups and innovators, particularly in these emerging tech spaces, to be able to do business with the DOD. But it seems like you're saying, yes, it also maybe be nice if we had some go-tos who were software first, steel second, instead of steel first, software second. And if those were our go-tos, that would be a way better safe default bet than hanging with the folks who are, are used to building tanks. Let me know if you would reword that, Steve. No, that's that's a fair... Right now, the innovation process in the DOD uh, simply is everybody gets a prize for showing up. You know, we we must have 75-plus incubators and accelerators. We're, we're now giving out million-dollar super grants. And, and gee, we, every, everybody, every agency has discovered OTAs, you know, for contracting. But none of them actually result in the big prizes. Again, go back to the list of major defense acquisition programs. And how many of these folks that have gone through incubators and accelerators in the DOD have gotten a, you know, a nine-digit award or greater? And the answer is zero or yeah. close to zero. And so that's the difference between innovation theater and innovation. And I'll contend that the DOD from top to bottom needs to stop just talking about this, but connect it to budget and deliverables. And, yeah. and as I said, you know, this stuff only happens that it actually to, when you have this transition of we can't just use the old tools, technology, systems, operational concepts, et cetera. 
So this works when, when you delegate authority and responsibility to experiment at small scale, and we have Bolinar, we have DARPA, we have Kessel Run, we have, we're doing that. But then we need to like build an organization or build mechanisms that allow to capture everything we're learning and share it with DOD wide. Okay, we've done this. So let's not do it again. Here's what we learned. This is good. This is bad. This is et cetera. And then incrementally take these giant leap problems, but break them up into small steps, either, you know, on purpose or to make them kind of achievable. Yes, having moonshots are great, but actually building minimum viable products that is iteratively and incrementally heading to those moonshots. And then as a cultural overlay, just developing a, a culture of, of immediate feedback. Um, so we don't, you know, have a requirement, go through budgeting and whatever. And, and by the time we deliver something, find out that it's not needed, not wanted, or the requirements writer never got out of the Pentagon and didn't understand what was actually needed in the field. And so we need to build a process that looks a lot more like, you know, a lean startup methodology than the McNamara era. 60-year-old process we built when the threats were known and the adversaries were known and operated at a predictable speed. Those rules that we operate on are just not true anymore, at least not for most of the stuff we need and the adversaries we need. And so we're hoping that someone kind of grasps that, wait a minute, it's not just let's stand up another, you know, Naval X or AFWorks or what, and all these are great programs. Don't get me wrong. I think they have shaped culture, shaped thinking, shaped whatever, but we're still five years into this and, you know, show me the programs of record at scale that match what our adversaries are putting in the, in the water or in space or, or putting up over, you know, denied territories. We don't have those systems yet. And, and, and you kind of remember, and we used to know how to do this. We used to know in, in the 50s how to generate century series of fighters, three generations of bombers, two generations of aircraft carriers, a couple of generations of subs, um, until we killed that process with, no, let's focus on the life cycle cost and .mlpf and, you know, long tail, et cetera, which all made sense, again, when these programs could last 30 years. We need to be thinking about, just one last thought, we need yeah. to be thinking about systems that have five-year life cycles, that are attritable, that are, you know, disposable, that, like, not only don't get refueled, that, like, when they fall in the ocean or, you know, get blown up on the ground, we go, okay, we got 10,000 more of them, rather than these small, exquisite systems that cost multiple billions of dollars that we spend more billions of dollars trying to protect or don't use because they're either manned or, or incredibly expensive. The mindset has to change on multiple levels. Well, and, and you, you know, have some experience here in seeing mindset change, encouraging kind of a culture of innovation. There's got to be some kind of a catalyst here because it, it seems to me like a lot of folks in the DOD are probably, you know, aware of China and, you know, other major concerns, considerations. You know, the, the man on the street, as it were, Steve, seems pretty preoccupied with kind of right versus left politics as if the rest of the world didn't exist at all. I suspect that, you know, it's certainly felt, you know, since I've been alive, that that's more or less been the case. Like we just kind of live in a bubble and, and like the excitement is about kind of the political crossfires in our own country. You know, you had mentioned somebody's got to harass the lobbyists and congressmen and whatever else to sort of get this sea change to happen. You've seen big change be forced to happen at big companies. What is going to be the forcing factor? I mean, you know, I, I hate to use horrendous analogies and I, I don't mean to be as drastic, but like, you know, Pearl Harbor type events, right? But what has to be the catalyst where 
it clicks. It almost feels like it has to click for the man in the street and then it has to click with votes in order for like these big systems to be seriously overhauled. Because otherwise, why wouldn't they just secure their own jobs and do the things they've been doing? I mean, what's your take there? Yeah, well, usually major change happens when three things happen. One is when you have a leadership change. You know, the new person comes in because the old one failed or, you know, whatever, and they look around and and obviously they're not going to do the last thing the last person does. They come up with something new. Or number two, as you described, is a crisis. Pearl Harbor, or or in this case, it's probably going to be a cross-strait invasion of Taiwan, which will be obviously horrifically bad for, it'll be a tragedy uh, for the people of Taiwan, but it'll be a calamity which the people in the United States don't understand because all our advanced technology comes from TSMC, which is a foundry that, think of it as the world's largest chip factory with the most advanced technology, then what's China owns that? And if they decide not to share it with Western democracies, you know, we're going to be a a second-rate nation for a long time. Or the third is, is that there are people who come together, so one leadership, two crisis, or there's a consensus and that could be a bipartisan agreement between Democrats and Republicans. And it has to start with Congress that simply says no to the stuff we've been spending. And, you know, thanks both the executive branch and the DOD that says, no, 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 we're not funding any of this old stuff anymore or none of it. But we're going to take 20 percent now, not 2 percent or not 0.02 percent, which is really probably where it is. And we want to be funding new things and from new primes. You know, there are people in Congress who get it. Problem is, of course, if you're in Congress, you're always worried about if you're in the House, you're worried about your next election. And even if you're in the Senate and have six years to be thoughtful, you're dealing with a million things at a time. And the ability to go deep, it's not that people are venal or stupid. I mean, we have our share of those, but... Well, not of course not, but but, but not well, the say, majority. To, to say the preponderance of senators right. are purely venal right. would be would be right. uh, hyperbole. So yes, I, I'm I'm following you. Right, but these are complicated issues, and the solutions obviously are not obvious. Meaning, we kind of understand on the big picture. I'll go back again that these are the new technologies we need to employ. But gee, you know, the first thing that people come up with is well, let's build unmanned big underwater vehicles, for example. And who do we hand them to? The same primes that are building our existing stuff, which, which on first pass is not a bad idea. But why don't we take like 20 percent of every one of those budgets and try to build up a new industrial base of shipyards that are making ships, but maybe not for the military and try to engage new thinkers, not just the same ones. And part of this and, and here's the other part that people in the startup world understand that is poisoned for execution organizations. And what I mean by that is operationally oriented organization like the Department of Defense, you don't want to be experimenting out on the battlefield when people are shooting at you. Yeah. You want known systems that work with known known outcomes, etc. Yeah. But in fact, innovation happens when you learn and discover. And that's a fancy word for saying, if you're in a learning and discovering mode, failure happens a lot. And it's not because we want failure. It's that we, in fact, push the envelope to see how far can we go and what do we learn from those in fact, in the startup world, if you're not failing, you're not really innovating. Now, to get that mindset into an organization like the Department of Defense that says, well, wait a minute, I, I've been trained that I don't want failure. I train, you know, repeatable processes. This is kind of hard because what you're really asking them to do is to innovate at speed. We need to build what's called an ambidextrous organization. There's some professors called Tushman and O'Reilly who've 
thought about this in the 20th century when it was kind of nice to have, but now it's essential. Organizations dealing with disruption, which we are at the DOD, need to be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. You need to be able to, to kind of maintain and protect your current capabilities, but you need to be rapidly experimenting with new technologies, new operational concepts, new you know vendors, new whatever in parallel. And we don't have that skill set yet. We, yeah. we kind of have tossed that off as kind of, oh, yeah, we have Kessel Run and we have X. But those, those are exceptions not embedded in our DNA. Those are kind of, as I said, innovation activities. They're not end-to-end processes. Yep. We have end-to-end processes for delivering known stuff. Again, we have PBE and we have JSIS and we have the you know acquisition lanes now that Ellen Ord put together. But we don't have that parallel process. And the irony is, of course, every service and combatant their own. But if you think about it, almost every service has an equivalent of a rapid capabilities organization, and everyone's figured out how to use OTAs. And what no one has realized is that a sum, we've actually developed a parallel process, but we can't get it over the finish line because we don't have the budgeted authority to turn them into major yeah. acquisition programs unless we make them black. That's not solving the problem. Not at speed. Not yet. Yeah. I love the frankness with which we're, we're, we're attacking this right now. Clearly necessary to shake things up. Final issue on this is, as we pivot into AI in a moment here, Steve, this shift, this chewing gum and walking, this ambidextrousness, this ability to have iteration as a mandate, a, a substantial portion of budget, new primes as a substantial portion of what we're doing. These cultural shifts feel very, very challenging in you know, a 20,000 person company, never mind, um, in the DOD, do you think, you know, we've got to rile up, you know, our Congress people, Senator, whatever the case may be here. It feels like why would they pay attention to it unless the constituency that they care about cares about it? It almost feels like people in America would have to feel like, geez, by golly, we might all be using CCP approved internet that doesn't mention Tiananmen Square. Like, like, you know, there would have to be, there would have to be a trembling. There'd have to be some felt threat almost for politicians to actually start to care. Maybe you see a different catalyst, or maybe you've got a list of them that, that people could think about, but I'd love to wrap on maybe just a handful of your thoughts of what's going to get those politicians to bring this to the fore. You know, 35 years ago, uh, Congress actually led on this, and it was called the Goldwater-Nichols Act. It's how hmm. we got uh, combatant commands, right? The, back then, the services fought independent wars. And, I was in Vietnam. I was in the Air Force, and we had our air war, and, and you know, the Navy had theirs. It was, like, you know, pretty separate activities. Weird. You know, now we kind of take for granted that, you know, we fight jointly, that the services, you know, provide the, the manpower and the equipment and, and some of the concepts, but they all kind of, you know, need to operate as a joint command. That took Congress to do that, and it actually started, if, if you read the book, I think it was called Victory on the Potomac, it actually started not by how do we create combatant commands, but how do we make the joint chiefs and, and joint staff uh, more effective and then got into a, a much bigger discussion of the more effective use of, uh, of military power in the 20th and 21st century. So, so to answer your question is there have been cases or the 1947 National Security Act that gave us the Air Force and created the joint chiefs, etc. So there has been time where both the legislative branch uh, with the executive branch took independent action. There's very few times I think that the civilian population has gotten so deeply familiar with these issues to, yeah, to make yeah, yeah, concrete yeah. suggestions about yeah. how to organize 
But in this case, it actually might take Congress to find, you know, this might be the one bipartisan thing we could agree on is that the defense of the nation is at risk and the homeland is at risk for the first time ever, at least at this scale. DOD by itself. But unfortunately, again, you know, Congress has been kind of captured by the props. When Huntington Ingalls takes out ads against cutting carriers, you know, we're kind of missing the point here. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if all these things are jobs, employment programs or, or stock price, you know, or whatever. And of course, the DOD uh, painted itself into a corner. It, it now wishes it wasn't standing in. You know, there was something called the Last Supper where the Secretary of Defense and Bill Perry sat down with the primes at the end of the Cold War and said, you guys need to merge. We never understood that what would happen if we only have one or two shipyards capable of making carriers or boomers. We have no negotiating power to say, well, if you don't do what we want, we'll take it to another yeah. supplier. There are yeah. no other suppliers. And my point is, we're still going to need carriers. Our argument is, you know, what kind and what's the right mix, et cetera. But if the primes are basically owned in Congress, you know, it makes it harder for Congress to be the one to kind of innovate here because there are so many vested interests. And by the way, China, of all people, understand how our political system works. I mean, oh, sure. much better than the Soviets did. And they're making sure that we don't do this. I'm concerned we don't see the problem broadly enough about technology, about how we need to change, about the new types of vendors, about the new types of operational concepts, and about how we need to build parallel innovation organizations. I don't see too many people inside the DOD at a high enough rank talking about that. Yeah. They're, you know, the good news is they are talking about things. As I said, um, when we open, they are talking about swarms and they are talking about, yep. yes, okay, but like, tell me there's, you'll never get a Silicon Valley or at least the A-team of Silicon Valley bidding to work with the DOD unless there's a contract at the end, not a booby prize for showing up, but a program of record. It isn't that Silicon Valley companies don't want to work for the DOD. It's that it's coin-operated here. There's just a lot more money to be made. No one, at least in Silicon Valley, who's good is going to work for a cyber grant. They will work for a prime contract, but your DOD isn't giving them out. Yep. At least not yet. With Mike Brown there, we, we might see that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good answer. Uh, and and I, I certainly think... Uh, you know, Mike, Mike at least gets it. I share your fear of the impending China risk. I, I do fear that the preponderance of America essentially cares not uh, about any of it. Hate to think what would have to happen for them to start caring. But you've mentioned a couple of those things. So I won't reiterate them. And I we need to be mindful of time and bring up our topic as we come towards the back end and, and towards our close here, Steve, around artificial intelligence. You know, you've mentioned AI and ML a few times. You know, when we think about where artificial intelligence fits into kind of the innovation cycle for the DOD. A lot of what you've brought up already is what we need to see, you know, the, the kind of culture of experimentation, being able to bring in new primes for whom this is, you know, sort of a core competency. Do you have a particular take on the importance of AIML, maybe even things you like from Schmidt's report or things that come to mind from your own perspective, Steve, that maybe folks interested in defense should be mindful of, you know, the, the relevance, importance uh, of AI in the future of the DOD? Yeah. So, you know, I, I see it as, as two ends. One is I've, uh, I've kind of laughed is that, you know, leadership uh, now understands that the word AI is important. And so, you know, every requirement I looked at almost amusingly has some AI requirement and, and everybody who responds to it kind of says, yeah, we do AI, but ours exactly. has, you know, cheddar cheese on it or how, 
so right now we're in the, excuse the phrase, the AI bullshit level, where no one quite understands what it is uh, it could do and, and how to how to adjudicate between people claiming they have expertise to do X and Y. Hopefully we'll get past that. We'll have requirements, people who actually can ask intelligent questions and, and actually ask for proof that you could do what you say you could do yeah. um, and you have the expertise to do that. But I think eventually it, it, AI is going to be like electricity or saying, do you have a CPU you know, or a computer in, embedded in, in technology X or Y? But there is going to be a gap between those countries that embrace it, you know, whether it's to right now we got hundreds of people in different places looking at radar tracks. Well, you don't need people doing that. You might need people in the loop to decide whether this is a valid weapon track or whether you could release weapons on this target. Maybe that's where you have a human being. But having rooms full of people doing that should disappear in five or ten years. It should have been disappearing yesterday. Or to have UAVs being, you know, we should have been having uh, unmanned tankers and unmanned ISR things flying off of carriers five years ago because we, yeah, the half of them would have crashed by now, but we would have gotten five years ahead till now. It would have been an operational system. So our F-18s would have just been used for, you know, projecting power with things that went boom. And then we, by now we would have been flying the next generation of maybe testing out uh, loyal wingmen of uh, autonomous things. But we've been experimenting with AI-based, you know, simple tasks like go orbit here, turn on sensor here, then land on carrier. We would have had years of practice. Those are kind of simple examples of embedding these things on, let's not try to do the most complex thing. And again, I'll pick the Navy as, well, maybe you don't want the first autonomous ships to, to navigate crowded straits or ports. So you kind of man them until they get outside and then you jump on a little on a zodiac and then the thing can navigate the open ocean without hitting anything till it gets on the top or under the water to where it wants to go and it do a great job and we'll learn a lot of stuff i just think we need to start putting things in the air and the water at a much more rapid speed and the mistake we keep making is oh and then we need to buy ten thousand of them in the first generation yeah now, we need to we need to have iterative and incremental experimentation to get to that scale and the goal should be that's the scale we're heading to, gentlemen. And here's the first couple of generations. And like, yeah, and by the way, and tell Congress, no, the first couple of generations are going to be like horrible. They'll be worse than our current things. That's why we're not replacing all of them. But the mistake that DOT makes is we're excellent at turning $2 million requirements into $200 million <laughs> programs. That's not the goal. We yeah. should be having lots of these things that will eventually turn into these programs when we learned a lot. And I think you know, AI is going to affect everything from, you know, autonomous weapon systems to actually intelligence predictions to planning. I mean, if you think about how planning works on the joint staff, I mean, there's a manual process to create operational plans that like take an enormous amount of time, you know, for a good number of them. Some of these could be auto generated and more importantly, auto updated as circumstances change and new data comes in. Obviously, you want a human being in the loop reviewing and editing and whatever, but drafting, I gotta tell you, I got a bunch of students who could probably do this in six months is build an automated planning system. But of course, you know, this now goes all the way back to when the Soviets were using not AI, but, you know, analytics to kind of predict things. And it's sometimes garbage in, garbage out. So you gotta be careful yeah. about confidence in AI systems. 
and where does humans go in the loop? And how do we ensure our adversaries are also using the same care? You know, we went through the same with uh, uh, nuclear weapons. We didn't want us or the Soviets to launch on the, the moon rose, which, by the way, happened, which triggered a lot of events, or somebody actually puts in a training tape, which happened again, which showed launches, which turns out, thank gosh, there was a human being in the loop who said, no, that's probably not real. We don't want to end-to-end automate everything, and humans do need to be there. But we also need to make sure that the neural nets we build are actually based on correct patterns, and also, obviously, that our adversaries don't go in and poison the the data, so they're blind to certain situations. The last piece about this is, you know, talent. There's just a finite number of people right now that are good at this stuff, and they're not working for the DOD. I don't mean there aren't great people in the DOD, but but the commercial world offers huge incentives, and they're just not pointed to Department of Defense. 100%. And so the question is, is how can the DOD use these new companies who are currently not oriented to the DOD? I mean, the only ones we think about are both Rebellion Defense in D.C. and Andrew in Southern California, and that's a pretty short list. I'm sure there are some other smaller startups, but, you know, we need to be able to talk about AI DOD primes like we talk about hardware DOD primes. In another five years, if we're not doing that, yeah, we will probably be speaking Chinese five years after that. Yeah, we'll be, be living in a AI-generated uh, virtual reality, fully Maoism approved. The scenario is stark, and I, you know, I wasn't even going to bring up talent, Steve, but you know, I, from my own vantage point here, I certainly know more folks, you know, smart folks who've left various DOD AI initiatives to do something in the private sector, whether it's work for a company that'll pay them a lot or whether it's even stand up a consultancy or something, then I know folks who've hopped in. Uh, it isn't to say we have nobody hopping in. I definitely have met some great folks that are still there, but but that that's major. And and so it sounds like for you, maybe we can't plan on hiring them all into the DOD, but what we at least bare minimum need to do is treat these software first, steal after, if at all, folks as the new generation of primes, except that this is where innovation happens. So if you think about it, Dan, and I'm I'm sure your listeners know, I mean, the DOD did a brilliant thing in standing up the Jake, right? The Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Uh, But listening to General Shanahan's uh, story about who he thought his first customers were was was kind of indicative of (laughs) why people are leaving. (laughs) Or or, actually, there are two stories. The first one is he thought, well, this is pretty obvious. The first target should be uh, for AI is image analysts who are looking, staring at screens going, plane, tank, plane, you know, SU-37, something else, whatever, and, and individually, like, you know, annotating this stuff. And and the story was, well, let's go to them and, and offer, it's pretty obvious that this doesn't take much AI and a little machine learning to, to automate this process. And of course, at least as I understood the story as he told it, was over their dead body, because they went, well, what will happen to our billets? You know, we'll have to retrain all these people. We'll lose our budget. And, like, and you just can imagine people go, no, no, this will change the nature of work. These analysts could now do more sophisticated analysis yeah. and, and got into a food fight. So who were the first people who grabbed Jake's output? It was SOCOM. Because SOCOM wants something that could make you live another day. That's pretty different from, like, is my billets going to go away? And until that culture changes... Um, you know, it's going to be, you're going to have those battles one at a time. You know, the other Jake story I loved is, you know, they kind of realized over time that 
instead of building bespoke applications, why don't they build a, a common framework for the entire DOD to build on top of? Great idea. Great. There's a lot of great software startups uh, who know how to do this. And in fact, if you would invest and give them a program of record of a couple hundred million bucks, they could be the next generation of DOD suppliers. So who'd they pick? Well, I'll leave that for the reader, but, yeah, yeah. but trust me, it's an existing name that like you wouldn't pick them <laughs> as, as the first thought leader in this area. And so we still kind of don't have that AI model right. We're, we, we might John the words, but we're really not, you know, walking the walk. Man, yeah. You know, I know we're, we're just coming to a close. I want to try to get one nugget here, Steve, that'll resonate with our defense listeners and also resonate with our private sector listeners as kind of a, a core message to take home. But I've worded it a few different ways. You know, what's going to be the catalyst that sort of gets this sea change, culture change, this kind of jobs protection attitude to shift? Of course, there's a lot of momentum in that direction. You know, does the public have to care? Does does Congress have to get on the same page about this? Maybe we can just close with a little bit of, you know, what you've learned in your rife experience in the private market of seeing larger companies finally shift. You mentioned leadership is potentially a change too. Is there anything from your various books and watching companies evolve in ways that were beneficial to their future survival that both defense and private sector people could take as a, a real take home from today? So if you really think about it right now, you know, the DOD gives tons of incentives to veteran-owned businesses, small businesses, small businesses, minority-owned businesses. You know, there's no incentives for DOD contracting with startups. And in fact, there are negative incentives for um, primes acquiring innovative startups to at least get that DNA into yeah, their companies. Yeah. The DOD could put a lot of thumbs on their scale with carrots. I'll talk about the sticks in a second, but... You know, I would just simply go to the CFOs of, of the primes and have an honest conversation. You know, we could either do this the hard way or we could do this the easy way. Why don't you tell us how we could actually help you maintain your profits and revenue, but you need to change? Or the hard way is, like the DOD is now working with the Justice Department reviewing our past contracts. So what would we like to do? And I would rather that we figured out a way to incent the primes to stop being sheet metal benders, and some of them will figure out, and if this pisses them off, it should, to actually move into the 21st century so their output is as good as a Silicon Valley startup, and that's not impossible. But there's no motivation to do that. There's no, you know, the math doesn't work for them right now. Yeah, the incentives, can't the incentives have to line up. Right? And, and plus, they can't acquire a startup at, at, at Silicon Valley prices because those have been bid up by marketplaces out of their control. So, you know, so I think this is really a, I'd rather, you know, I'm a huge capitalist at heart. This is one, let's figure out how to get the primes in the game, not kind of where instead of their lawyers and lobbyists being their greatest asset, to actually have the 21st century technology that they need to own be their greatest asset and how to get them to figure out how to change how they're thinking. And again, as I said, I would start with as much motivation as we can. It's usually in the CFO and board's offices are like, Guys, like, yeah, we want you to make a lot of money, but it's not going to be the same old way. So hard way or easy way. And some some will figure out that, no, we still own Congress. We're going to do it the hard way. And maybe there'll be a couple of perp walks and, and they'll realize that that's not the way the rest of them want to go. <laughs> and the rest of them will decide they want to do it the easy way because the government says we, we and I still believe they're national assets. I don't want to screw the primes. They're also coin operated. 
Yep. Very few of them. In fact, you know, I'm again piss them off more. You know, none of those boards are working on national interest. They're working on stock price and and quarter to quarter revenues. Yep. Uh, or else they wouldn't have lobbyists. Um, yeah. So so why don't we figure out how to align all those things again? We need to have these folks moving uh, into 21st century in our national interest and figuring out a way to to help them to continue to grow while they do that. Yeah, the the aligning of incentives at that at that scale, I dig it as as something worth contemplating for our our defense folks in a big way, and probably something absolutely necessary to see the kinds of changes that certainly you're hoping for, Steve, and I have my fingers crossed for as well. So I'm going to leave you with one last thought, if sure. I can, on that. Please riff. do. Is that how many two stars and above can draw a business model of a Silicon Valley startup or venture capital firm? Yeah. How many can read an income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow? of a public company. Unless you start to do that, you really don't understand about the new system that needs to be created, you know, and and the incentives that we need to put in place. You know, you kind of hand wave and say, well, that's someone else's problem. And for 60 years it was, but that's now all our problems is to figure out how to get these, these new incentives aligned with these new technologies that we need, again, not to demo, but to deploy and we won't get them deployed unless they become major acquisition programs. And we don't have enough budget to just add them on the top. So we need to figure out what we're going to kill and, and why. So that's, that's my two cents. Hi, this is Dan Fagella with Emerge. And while I'd normally say that's the end of this episode, it is not. Steve and I also talked about the cultural and political elements of AI innovation and kind of the intersection of Silicon Valley and defense And we carry on the conversation for another few minutes on that topic kind of after the official interview. So I thought it was so good, I wanted to make sure that we could include it here for you. Uh, So I'm going to roll the rest of our conversation here at the end of this first interview clip. So I hope you've enjoyed the interview thus far, and we're going to carry on to some of the post-interview conversation with Steve that we both wanted to make sure was included in this full interview. So, you know, Dan, there is a a myth uh, that certainly from Washington's point of view that DOD doesn't want to work with a valley. We started a program at Stanford called Hacking for Defense. It's now in its fifth year. It's now expanded to 47 universities where students and research universities work on DOD problems, some of the toughest problems the country has from all branches of the DOD and the intelligence community. This year, it's it's run by Defense Innovation Unit, and uh, we'll put over a thousand students through that. You know, part of the DOD's problem is they've forgotten some of the lessons of the 1950s in working with the commercial uh, industries because they they hadn't had to do it at scale. Is that in the 50s and 60s, almost every commercial company had either a federal systems or government division. So people who didn't want to work on government programs weren't in that part of the company. And people who did consciously moved in and worked on those programs. And so therefore, you didn't have to make that decision if you were civilian. Did you want to work on military programs? If you're at Google today and or Microsoft and you find out your company is working for the military, you have no choice of which part of the company you're working on. And even though some of these commercial things, you know, are kind of fallen between the, the different areas, I think that would be the first thing I would suggest to the DOD acquisition folks is have companies set up physical or virtual um, arms of their uh, company and that therefore people can decide. Second is to, you know, post-Snowden, the DOD went into ostrich mode and literally hid and let others kind of take the high ground of the conversation, when in fact the conversation 
while not incredibly simple, could have made simple as, hey, you know, the NSA screwed up 9-11. We had the data. We just never put it together. And so post 9-11, we went the other way with the authority of the House and Senate Intelligence Committee. And we weren't spying on Americans. We were trying to find bad guys living in American. You don't want us to do that? Happy not to do it. But, you know, we didn't have any evil intent. But the part they missed was everybody at Silicon Valley who read the Snowden disclosures went, oh, my gosh, these people are 20 feet tall. I want to work for them. But instead of recruiting, <laughs> it just kind of hit and uh. never engaged. And I just found that just amazing. I And I know this because I teach in the engineering school at Stanford. There were people going, wow, they could do what? And of course, well, we can neither confirm nor deny. We can't even read it. By the way, if you remember, the SecDev said you can't, the, the most inane thing ever, you can't read these publicly accessible documents if you're in the DOD. Oh, geez. You know, like, like wait a minute, say what? But everybody else was reading them who was a civilian, but, and our adversaries have read them. But if you're in the DOD, you're not allowed to read them. Okay, I'm sure there must be a reason, but that doesn't make us look too smart either. The, the point was, what a great opportunity to recruit by just saying, I can simply neither confirm nor deny, but imagine if we could. Do you want to work for those people? Holy cow. Instead, we got, as I said, lots of people who had, listen, real live issues about privacy of Americans, but we just did a terrible job of explaining why we were doing it and that we weren't trying to violate the privacy of Americans. We were trying to prevent another 9-11. This is how we were doing it. And if it's not okay, well, stop doing it. Like, hey, you guys decide. You're Congress. Just make sure you understand the consequence of shutting us off from yep. that data. Yep. And that's a fair conversation to have. But, yep. you know, but but again, it came down to others thinking of, and, and again, the NSA, and I'm not picking on them, but the DOD has kind of not a perfect track record of, you know, we did letter opening, we intercepted telegrams and whatever without authorities in the 50s and 60s. And all right, why were we doing it again? Well, in this case, we, we at least mentally had a rationale of what just happened to our country and we didn't want it to happen again this time with, you know, weapons of mass destruction. But that conversation never got made. So one is the DOD did a terrible job of communicating, even worse with even a worse job. They just basically opted out of dealing with Silicon Valley. And they still haven't figured out how to deal with commercial companies in a way we used to know how to do in the 50s and 60s. And we could do that again. It's not very hard. And Mike Brown and DIU have established a footprint. InQtel, not so much because they, they still tend to want to have a not engage at all. But I think DIU has done a good job out here. Hacking for Defense at Stanford has done a good job. Um, but we could still do better in communicating like what the issues are. And, and you know, the trusted capital market and CFIUS are now that is trying to keep foreign investment out of uh, key technologies or at least venture capitalists now have to engage with the government just on on their investments. But we could do a lot more, uh, not only here, but obviously at, around uh, Boston for MIT and Harvard and other technology centers as well. You know, one of the constraints the DOD has, obviously, is it can't hire a PR agency, but it, it can learn how to communicate a lot better. And I think uh, I think I'd give it a D um, so far. <laughs> It's uh, the, the second line of D's that you've uh, you've handed out in this interview. Um, so you're you're far less pessimistic about that. What I sort of would have thought, you know, as my my goading question here was around the felt resistance to defense, even as a topic, and the felt association between you know American defense and colonialism and bad things and you know whatever other buzzwords we want to use for bad stuff. And I'm not calling the DoD a saint either, but but just sort of the general 
I felt this milieu of, ooh, by golly, you know, defense colonialism, it's just the epitome of bad things. What you're saying is, well, if they knew it was cool, people would actually just want to hop in. I don't really know if that other cultural stuff actually sort of matters that much or they just communicated better. I think people would just kind of like work with them. It, it doesn't actually feel like you feel like there's a tremendous amount of credence to that kind of social political stuff I was bringing up. In the Cold War, post-World War II to 1968, every research university in the country worked hand-in-hand with the DOD. There was classified work on every college campus that had research. And that continued until the Vietnam War. And in the Vietnam War at Stanford, MIT, University of Michigan, etc., student riots forced uh, classified research and ROTC off of campuses. Whoa. And that continued for another 30 years of anti-war, anti-military, et cetera, both in faculty and, and whatever, until 9-11. And in 9-11, we had probably a decade of collaboration again um, because that was a unifying event for the country. Um, and then the Snowden thing, again, poisoned the well, and so did the perpetual wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, but I think the DOD has done itself a huge disservice about just not willing to engage or get in the game or being innovative and, and how to engage because, and again, it's not stupid people or whatever. It's like very little of the DOD has experience from the Stanford's or Harvard's or MIT. It's not that there are none, but that's, you know, we've kind of much like with the fact of ending national service, we ended kind of like, it's no longer a universal thing. Um, yep. And and so when my students at, at, at these kinds of schools could make millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars going into startups, you know, like if we haven't made the case for service as part of your life, whether now or later, we've kind of bifurcated the country. And uh, I just believe that, you know, I had a great entrepreneurial career. As I said, I'm a huge capitalist, but at some point in your life, you need to serve others, whether it's God, country, community, or family, you know, and I served the, uh, I served the country during Vietnam in yep. uh, Southeast Asia. Um, you know, I was a public official for six and a half years in California. And now my last career is as an educator. And I think I've, I've lived a pretty full life in doing it all, you know, touching all those bases. Checking the boxes. We've not done a good job of that as well. It's not that people don't serve or serve their church or their synagogue or whatever, but, but we've not kind of as a country just remembered that the, the model was uh, e pluribus unum, right? Uh, yeah, you know, out yeah, of many, yeah. out, out of many, one. Yeah. And these are the kinds of things where, where unless we have those things where we could jointly serve, we end up using Facebook or social media as echo chambers. And those have been taken off by people for profit or other reasons that actually tear apart the country rather than unify them. So to answer your question, I think that DOD has a huge opportunity and Silicon Valley is a proxy for other technology areas and, and or clusters and other research universities to fully engage. And I mean, fully engage. And that's wow. another way to get people to get people cognizant of the threats we face. If we could start teaching people about, let me tell you about what happened to the Uyghurs or yeah, let me tell you what happened about day. Hong Kong. If I could mention Uyghurs once in every podcast, I would, Steve. Unfortunately, I can't. But today, thanks for doing it for me. I appreciate that. Frankness is appreciated, and hopefully for the listeners as well, Steve. I know that's all we had for time, but thank you so much for being able to join us here on the show today. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 
So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. It was a real pleasure to catch up with Steve Blank. Again, having read his book some seven long years ago, being able to actually hear his take on how AI fits into the mix and specifically how AI and innovation fit into the mix of defense, which is a much harder organization to steer than a startup, by the way, was pretty doggone fascinating. And this, again, is just the first of a three-part series. Our guest next Tuesday is the head of the DIU, that's the Defense Innovation Unit. Somebody who I think understands emerging technology better than most was previously the CEO of a public Silicon Valley company before taking that post, uh, and his name is Michael Brown. Some of you have heard of him, some of you have not, but he is worth listening to, and he is our guest next Tuesday in this short series about AI in defense. So again, world-class guests is what we're shooting for here. We had so much attention on that previous article about the seven weaknesses of the West. By the way, if you haven't seen it, you can type in seven weaknesses of the West, E-M-E-R-J, into Google. I'm sure you'll be able to find it in short order. Let us know what you think about the article. It's kind of been the prompt of getting this started. It's an article that still gets retweets, still gets comments. Uh, I still get emails about. And so that was part of the impetus to get this series off the ground. Let us know what you think. Check it out. Seven weaknesses of the West, E-M-E-R-J. And otherwise, stay tuned next Tuesday for more transferable lessons from the world of AI innovation in defense here on the AI and Business Podcast.